Well, in 2010, the Academy Award for the Best Motion Picture went to Lee Daniels and his team for the movie Precious. Uh, and the movie Precious was an adaptation of uh, the novel Push, which was written by a sapphire. And this story involves uh, a junior high girl named Precious Jones. She was growing up in Bronx in the 1980s. The movie lets us see uh, her outer world, and in her outer world, Precious is absolutely struggling to survive. She's abused by uh, her, both of her parents, uh, and uh, she's taunted and bullied in school, on the street, and, uh, and failing schools have, have left her illiterate. Though she's a junior higher, she is illiterate. Precious is indeed among the walking wounded, and you really get that sense when you're watching the movie. The movie also, however, lets us experience Precious's imagination. Um, and we talked last week about how the imagination is the human capacity to see what is unseen. It's the human capacity to see what is unseen, whether it's we're seeing what we're going to have for lunch this afternoon, or whether we're seeing the love of a parent, or whether we're seeing one way that we can serve our neighbors. We have this capacity to see the unseen. Mike's not on. How about now? Can you, okay. It's on the on the switch. The switch is on. That's okay. How about now? It, nod your head if you can hear me. Okay. Okay. Great. No, no worries at all. Thank you. Um, so anyway, what can Precious see with her imagination? She can see something that's unseen with her imagination, and she, here's how she puts it: My name is Clarice Precious Jones. I want to be on the cover of a magazine. I wish I had a boyfriend with good hair. But first, I want to be in one of those BET videos. And we then see a fantasy sequence of Precious uh, dressed in a celebrity photo shoot, dressed for a celebrity photo shoot, clothed with uh, glamorous attire, uh, accompanied with an adoring boyfriend uh, who licks her ear. <laughs> and, uh, and it's really something. All Precious has to do is to close her physical eyes and open the eyes of her imagination, and for a few moments, she is an object of worship rather than an object of abuse. And for a few moments, uh, her wounds don't hurt as much. Perhaps you've experienced some of the real-life pain that's depicted uh, in Precious's life, or maybe your life has been easier. In either case, we are all like Precious in that we have an imagination that is hungry for stories about our identity and our purpose. We want to see the good, the true, and the beautiful meaning in our life, that there is meaning in our life, that we do have an identity, we do have a self, we have a reason for being alive, and it's a good, true, and beautiful reason. Uh, and that's the purpose of our current sermon series. We're doing a sermon series called um, From Fantasy to Reality, and it's about the renewed imagination. Perhaps you received one of these cards on your way in. On the one side is a beautiful image uh, put together by Peter Thompson, designed by Rin Manby. On the other side is the list of, of sermons. So today we're going to talk about glory fantasies, and next week we'll talk about revenge fantasies, maybe, maybe uh, justice fantasies in, in, in your world. Um, we're going to talk about comfort 
fantasies, anxiety fantasies, sex and romance fantasies. We're going to cover all these topics because we want to know how our imagination works well when it is operating as God intended it to operate. Um, the renewed imagination is fueled by what God has said is true about who we are and why we exist. That's the renewed imagination working as it's supposed to. But we have fed our imagination false stories. We've malnourished our imagination with stories about our desires and about our pain that are incomplete. Stories about our desires and our pain have, have absolutely malnourished our imaginations and we cannot see what is true and good and beautiful because our imaginations, instead of being vertically focused and connected to God, they are bent in on ourselves. And this often leads to what we'll call today glory fantasies. Movie producer John Waters made this observation about Americans. And he says this, most everybody secretly imagines themselves in show business. And every day on their, on their way to work, they're a little bit depressed because they're not. People are sad. They are not famous in America. Maybe we don't want to be on TV. Maybe that's not filled your imaginations. But perhaps we're coddling dreams of grandiosity and no one's challenged them. Perhaps we, we, we live in a secret world where we're changing the world. And we're so connected to that dream that we can't even separate ourselves from it. And we've only been encouraged to coddle those dreams of grandiosity of changing the world, of being the center of attention. Dreams, or even dreams that are, that are kind of petty, where we win someone over that's won us over, or we attract somebody that's attracted us, or, or, or we, we impress somebody that we find impressive. Maybe that's the way we imagine our own glory. See, in glory fantasies, we picture ourselves in a scenario where we are worshipped, adored, and admired by people and desired by people. Our independent self displays special capacities and breathes rarefied air and displays feats of glory on a grand scale. We are famous. We are feared. We are lifted high. In glory fantasies, uh, in short, glory fantasies are stories about us taking God's place. And as we'll see today, this is the original sin of the imagination. It is our first breach from reality. Glory fantasies blind our imaginations from seeing God as the true source of glory. They blind us from seeing the unique calling we have from God to reflect his glory in the world. So ironically, it separates us from our true calling to reflect his glory. Glory fantasies turn us inward, and therefore they are a prison and they are a foretaste of hell. We need to be free, friends, from this lie. We need to be free from this unclean dream of taking God's place. I want to invite you, if you haven't already, to turn to Genesis 3 in your Bibles and your bulletin. And today, we're going to hear a tragic story of the capturing of Eve's imagination. Eve, uh, as, as Genesis tells the story, Eve was God's designated queen who was called to reflect God's glory and rule the world alongside her husband, Adam. She carried around the blessing of God. She was full of the blessing of God. 
And, and she was given God's mandate to be creative and loving in the world. She had this incredible mandate, and her imagination was given to her to see that process unfold, to see her identity, to see her purpose, and to do incredible things in partnership with her husband, Adam, and in partnership with God to bring about beauty and justice in the Garden of Eden and beyond, to fill and subdue the world. Let's start with an observation. Uh, it's uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. The observation is this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent was more crafty. This is the op- appearance for the first time of God's enemy, Satan. And his imagination had already been broken. He comes into the garden crafty. His imagination had already been broken. Um, before this scene that we're going to read, um, God's enemy had already told himself what he will tell Eve, and that is, you shall be like God. He told himself that story. Another writer from Scripture describes in a poetic way Satan's original rebellion from God, and he describes it as a glory fantasy, wherein uh, Satan says to himself something along the lines of, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the Most High. Uh, Lucifer was not satisfied with being a beautiful creature made, in, uh, made by God. He wanted to become God. He was not satisfied with his status before God. He wanted to become God. And he began to dream about how that could happen. His imagination had already been broken. And he came to break Eve's imagination and turn it on herself in the same way that it had been turned on him. So how in the world could this crafty serpent pull this off? Here's how he does it. And he'll do the same thing with us. Uh, Satan sets up Eve for a glory fantasy with two devastating suggestions. And the first devastating suggestion is something is wrong with you. Something is wrong with you. Let's see this happen. The second half of verse 1, he says this, uh, Satan says, the serpent says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? See, Satan is pointing out what she does not have access to, and he calls attention away from her true vocation, and in the process, distracts her from her true mission and the amazing work that she has been given to do. He distracts her from all of the trees and all of the precious metals, and all of the rivers, all of which are under her and Adam's domain to steward. And that was indeed an honor for her to have that job. But he distracts her from the job that she has. And then he says, um, in verse 4, he said to the, to the woman, You will not surely die if you eat of the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. For God knows, Eve, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now don't miss what the serpent is suggesting. In this encouragement, he's actually discouraging her. Eve, I can't believe God didn't tell you this already. But let me break it to you. You're naive, Eve. (laughs) You don't have the knowledge of good and evil yet. Frankly, I'm embarrassed for you. You don't have the knowledge of good and evil yet. Supposedly, 
you're made in God's image. God has this knowledge. I have this knowledge. You don't have this knowledge? Did you not know this about yourself? That there's a flaw in how God made you and there is something wrong with you? God hasn't opened your eyes yet. There's something really embarrassingly wrong with you and incomplete about you. This is a lie. There's nothing wrong with Eve. She was clothed with the glory of God. She was God's queen. She was his ambassador. She was given dominion of the whole earth. She didn't need to know evil to be complete. She didn't need to have knowledge of evil to be complete and perfect. Satan is introducing to to Eve the same thing that he introduces to us to make temptation stronger, which is the voice of shame. The voice that says... In your core, something's wrong with you, and you deserve to be rejected and isolated because of who you are. There's something fundamentally wrong with who you are, and because of that, you deserve to be on the outs, outside of the inner ring, rejected from all of us over here who have everything together. We can see you. You're exposed. Get away from me. (laughs) You're not worthy. That's the voice of shame. And I learned this from a really insightful book by Ed Welch called Shame Interrupted. If you want to learn more about shame, I encourage you to get this book, Shame Interrupted by Ed Welch. See, what Satan's doing is he's holding up one of those fun house mirrors to Eve, one of those distorted mirrors. And he's saying, hey, don't look at God anymore. Look at yourself and look at how distorted you are and look at how incomplete you are and keep thinking about yourself and keep focusing on yourself. Because you have a problem with yourself. Something's wrong with you, so you should feel ashamed. That's the first devastating setup for a glory fantasy. And the second devastating suggestion is this. You can make up for it and more. You can totally make up for what's wrong with you, and then some. You can rise above your original place and go to some amazing place where no one can ever question whether or not you know everything. What, no one can ever question whether or not you're naive. You can set yourself up in a way that's going to blow everybody away. You can make up for it and more. See, he starts to starve her imagination of her calling, of her purpose, and then he feeds it. He knows her imagination is going to be hungry for a calling, and so he feeds her a calling, but it's a false calling to do a false thing, to create a false self. She was already like God. Satan says, no, 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 no. You should become like God in a new way, in a spectacular way, in a very special Wizard of Oz-like way. He's projecting, he's creating a phantom stage. And then he's inviting Eve to begin projecting with her imagination a phantom self to do something amazing and theatrical on that phantom stage. Come on, Eve, do something bold. Do something impressive. Prove yourself and you shall be like God. And that logic makes a lot of sense to us too. See, as Satan inspires her to take hold of a false glory, he's introducing to her a false greatness at the cost of true goodness. It's a false greatness at the cost of true goodness, at the cost of true relationship. What does that mean? Uh, Donna Rockwell is a psychologist who studied the impact that celebrity status has on an individual. 
and her work was published in 2009 in the Journal of Phenomenological Psychology. And, and the title is called Being a Celebrity, the Phenomenology of Fame. Really fascinating bit of research. And she's essentially answering the question, what happens when you're chasing down fame and you actually get it? So she studies people who have become famous to, to find out what happens to them psychologically. Um, what happens, in other words, when the glory fantasy comes true? When it comes true, what do you get? Um, and she found that being a celebrity multiplies false relationships and undermines true ones. It brings you all kinds of false, unsatisfying relationships that you don't need, and then it undermines those true, close, family-like, friend-like relationships that actually bring nourishment to your life. It, it makes those a lot harder. Um, and, and so it shakes up your connection to reality. Your life becomes more unreal because you get lots of unreal relationships and you lose the real relationships. Here's how she puts it. The experience of being famous, she says, is something for which no one is prepared. It is a world described as bizarre, surreal, scary, lonely, creepy, daunting, embarrassing, confusing, and invasive. One of her research subjects... Uh, who is himself a celebrity, he's not named, um, uh, but he is a real celebrity, and he describes what the new false relationships are like. He says this, Fame 101 is needed to teach people what's coming. The swell of people, the emails, the greetings on the street, the honking of the horns, the screaming of your name. It builds like a tornado that can sweep you off your feet and take you away and put you in a world that has no reality whatsoever. That's what fame does as says a celebrity. Another celebrity describes the loss of, of true relationships. He says, I began to forget my family. I began to forget my children. I began to forget my wife. I had forgotten those who were closest to me. And Rockwell concludes that celebrities are at great risk for character splitting, mistrust, and isolation. This is not celebrity bashing time. But I want you to know the dangers of the glory fantasy and what they point us toward. You can be a celebrity and serve God, absolutely, as long as being a celebrity is not itself your God. So when a glory fantasy comes true, or even when it doesn't, it encourages you to become like God in a way that God hasn't asked of you. He's already made you like God, but you're trying to become God in a way that he hasn't asked of you, and it becomes a false greatness at the cost of true goodness. Verse 7 of Genesis 3 says this. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They had to cover themselves with a fig leaf. Instead of Adam and Eve caring for creation, stewarding creation, now they're turned in on themselves and they have extra needs. Now they have to break creation so that it can care for them. They have to kill an animal so that it can cover them. They have to break off a fig leaf so it can cover what they now have is actual true shame. Something is wrong now. And it has broken their relationship with creation. We'll read later on, uh, we'll, you would read later on in, in Genesis about the fact that it alienated them from each other. There is new strife in their relationship. It alienated them from God. They had to hide from God. And it alienated them from, their, from themselves in their work. Their work became harder and more arduous and more broken. 
If you have to impress people from a distance and earn their admiration, you'll always be faking it. You'll always be at a distance faking it. You'll always be striving. You'll always be restless if you're trying to make a glory fantasy come true and live according to the mythology that it presents to you. And striving and fakery make relationship very difficult. Real relationships, loving relationships that we all hunger for, it makes it very difficult. You'll have to use people. You'll have to manipulate people to serve your ends, to serve your fantasy so that they can give you the glory that you're craving. And as a result, people will not trust you. There is a better way than this false greatness at the cost of true goodness. Flip on over to Matthew. It's in your bulletin as well. Matthew 4. Friends, this is the beginning of our imaginations being healed and made new. Is this temptation that Jesus had uh, at the hands of Satan. When the mirror is finally taken away, so that instead of looking at ourselves as the source of glory, our imaginations can look upward to God, who has all of it. Um, now, this temptation between uh, Jesus and Satan, it, uh, this is repeating what happened in the Garden of Eden with Eve. Only this time, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is standing in the place of Eve. And the devil comes at him with the same temptation. Look at verse 5 with me. He says, it says this, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Hey, Son of God, if you're the Son of God, like, do something amazing. Do something spectacular. Do something razzle-dazzle and make everybody's jaws drop so that you can prove to them that you actually have the glory of God. Because guess what? You're just a regular guy. You're just this carpenter guy who like, has a few questionable followers. And like, the son of God thing is not, I'm not buying it. They're not buying it. You could do something to make up for that. You could, you could be spectacular. You could be amazing. And Jesus says to him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He resists the temptation. He resists the buzz and the temptation to live by the buzz. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all this I will give you. All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This, of course, is not true. Okay, this is a fantasy. This is an unreal, broken story that has traces of truth, enough traces of truth to be tempting. But it's not real. This wouldn't have actually happened. Do you want people to bow down to you? Do you fantasize about being sought out and admired and loved? Are there people that you tend to bow down to in order to get their, their glory, their status, people that intimidate you? You fantasize about them accepting you, promoting you, praising you. If so, listen carefully to Jesus' response to this temptation, this glory fantasy temptation. Then Jesus said to him, and this is 
Verse 10. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Here's what Jesus says. No. There is something unseen that you need to see, Satan. I can see it and now you need to see it. And it is a God who is worthy to be worshipped and served. It is a God who is full of glory. I don't need to worship you to get glory for myself. There is a greater power. There is a holy God, and you need to look up at him and worship and serve him. Your imagination needs to be connected to who he is. It's fitting when people gather around God and worship him and are awe-inspired by him. It is fitting when people shout God's name and yearn for his attention and want to be near him. It's fitting. God can handle that. So Satan, don't call for me to bow down to you. You bow down to him. Worship the Lord your God. Serve the Lord your God. This is a view of God that was big. A view of God that was expansive. And ultimately, when we are tempted to make it all about ourselves, God needs to change the subject and make it all about him. That is the beginning of our imaginations being healed. When we finally see, oh, it's God who needs to be worshipped and served. It's God who needs to be worshipped. And it's God who needs to draw the crowds. It's God who needs to be impressive because that's who he is. It's fitting. It's not fitting. It's false when we try to take his place. And here's what, here's what Jesus did. He, he was secure enough in God's glory to take on our shame. He was secure enough in his baptism to, to, to be covered in shame, to associate with lepers, to be kind to people, to take people by the hand and, 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 and touch their, uh, their, their blindness and, and heal them. He, he, he was so secure in his glory that he could take away any shame that got anywhere near to him. He just said, yes, come to me. Come to me and let me, let me show you, let me take your hand with an enfleshed glory of God, and, and, I'll, and I'll heal your pain and I'll heal your shame. That's how secure he was in God's glory. He made it possible for us to exchange glory fantasies for a glory encounter, which heals us in a way that the glory fantasies never could. He made an encounter with the real thing possible. He made it possible for us to consume the substance of God's glory. He bled God's glory he took on our shame and exchanged it with, a, with the clothes of God's glory. We could be restored to, what, to, to the kinds of glory reflecting we were always meant to do. He made it close enough to heal us. In a few months, uh, it's going to be really cold. Okay? You've seen the Facebook, you know, warnings. Okay? Record snowfall. Um, okay? You're going to miss the sun so so much. You are. You're going to miss how warm it is. You're going to miss the feeling of being at Montrose Beach. Being like, oh, I'm playing Frisbee. (laughs) Oh, the cooler. You're going to miss the vitamin D. So, the couple ways of handling that deficit, which will be real, First way is you could go to a tanning booth, okay? And that would be so obnoxious. 
Because a tanning booth imitates the sun as best it can. It gins up some kind of sunlight quality and, um, and does something to you like the sun, but not really. Kind of turns you orange. And it's not satisfying like a day at the beach, is it? It's a pale imitation. It doesn't really do the job. And you will be orange. <laughs> the other option is this. And let's just say this is an option. You take out the ticket to Florida that's in your back pocket. That, that, that a wealthy benefactor has made possible. And you get on a plane and you go to a different place. And you adjust to where the sun is. And you go where the sun is. You go to Florida. And you step off the plane and immediately you are in a different reality. And the sun, the substance of the sun begins to form itself in you. And vitamin D is created in you. And it's satisfying and it's rich. And, and it changes you. Now listen, when we're hungry for glory, and all of us are hungry for glory, we can try to get it through a fantasy and, and, and look for our significance in the eyes of others. But that's not the real thing. And it will not satisfy, it will not heal, it will not complete. I was talking with worship leader Dan Fager uh, on Friday about this. And he said, you know, we're, we're all made of clay, we're all made of dust, and none of us are lasting. And it's a really foolish thing to look for glory among people who are made of dust, who are based in carbon, and who will soon die. Dreams of grandiosity will turn you into the Wizard of Oz. Distant, spectacular, and thoroughly fake. And people won't be able to trust you. You'll be using people, but you won't be loving people. That's what a glory fantasy will do to you. A glory encounter, however, so much more satisfying. Seeking and adjusting to the presence of the one who has all the glory, who is high and lifted up, who is the creator of all life, who definitely outranks you, but who is seeking you in love and holiness and, and, and grace and pouring out his life and pouring out his glory for you. It's liberating. And if we have a glory encounter, all of a sudden we're free to treat people the same way Jesus treated people was treating them with tenderness, treating them with love, and not using them and not manipulating them. St. Ignatius of Loyola really struggled with this. He was a soldier, and he was wounded in battle. And, and when he was in convalescence and recovering, um, he was dreaming of uh, glory in battle. He was dreaming of like getting back on the battlefield and finally settling the score and like winning <laughs> and, and, and earning glory on the battlefield, which... which, which many men over the years have, uh, of human history have dreamed of. But then um, he, he was, he, his imagination was turned in a different direction when he began to read about the lives of the saints. And he began to think about, oh, saint so-and-so followed Jesus in this way, and saint so-and-so followed Jesus in this other way, and he began to put himself in their shoes and, and imagine what it would be like to follow Jesus in the same way they followed Jesus. And he realized, it, it occurred to him that there was that there was two things going on. There was actually different spiritual powers behind each thought. On the one hand, these glory fantasies left him what he called with a sense of desolation. 
with a sense of coldness. He wasn't satisfied, and, and it alienated him from God. But these stories of the saints, these stories that pointed him to the living Christ, brought him what he called consolation, and it left him full of God's love, and it left him alive and burning with passion to follow Jesus. This is uh, the call for us, to follow St. Ignatius of Loyola, who, as it turns out, is a celebrity, Pick up a Bible if it's on your shelf. And, and let feed your imaginations with the life of Christ. And put yourself there. Put yourself in, the, in the, uh, the role of the blind man. Put yourself in the role of the leper who says, if you're willing, I, you can heal me. And Jesus says, I can be healed. Put yourself with your imagination before Jesus. That's what he wants. He wants to interact with us through our imaginations. And there's no better way uh, for that to be for that to transpire, then when the word of God is open, we can see Jesus in the Gospels. We can lay down our glory fantasies and we can take up a true glory encounter. We can adjust to the sun instead of imitating the sun. We can be fed, we can have substance. And we can become like Christ, reflecting the glory that was always intended to shine through our life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.